Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For May 12th, 2022, it's the Why Did White Evangelicals Get So Angry edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., back from vacation. Woefully, loathsomely, unhappily back from vacation. I am joined... Thanks! ...by... Emily Vazlon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven, Connecticut. Emily, welcome. Hello. I'm glad you're back from vacation. And you have a new family member. You have a new child. Congratulations. I have a new dog. Yes. Rosie has arrived. May we all survive. All Emily has been doing is talking about Rosie, sending pictures of Rosie, chronicling Rosie's sleep. Well, maybe we'll have a cameo from Rosie at some point on the GabFest. Is Rosie named after uh, uh, someone in particular, or do you just like Rosie, or are you a fan of Rosie the Riveter, or do you like Rose the Flower? Rosie the Riveter was an inspiration. Really, Rosie was an inspiration. Um, our congresswoman's name is Rosa DeLauro. I thought that was kind of funny. It's overdetermined. Exactly overdetermined. Exactly. That was John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning from New York, where he is uh, he's recuperating. Hello, John. Hi, David. Hi, Emily. People who may not uh, know, because you would have no reason to know, uh, the recuperating is that we uh, all in our family got COVID and still have it according to the testing. So that's what's up with us. That's why I wasn't with you last week, um, which I was very sad not to be with you, but it was a good, uh, it was a very good show. Um, But Sorry not to be with you. So a part of my convalescence is uh, the happiness of being with you now. This week on the GabFest, what will happen to abortion laws in a post-Roe America? We'll look at the state landscape, the national landscape, the moral landscape. Then, is Trump getting more or less powerful in the Republican Party? What do this week's primary results tell us about that question? Then, white American evangelicals have gotten extraordinarily political and conservative and quite angry recently. What is behind the political potency of this new religious right? We will talk with Ruth Graham of the New York Times, who covers that movement. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. One thing is pretty clear. If the Supreme Court goes ahead and wipes out Roe, the post-Roe landscape is going to be extremely chaotic in this country. In the days since the draft opinion leaked, we've already seen all kinds of movement in all kinds of directions to protect, but more to disparage abortion rights. So Louisiana is considering a bill to criminalize abortion as murder. The Mississippi governor has declined to say if his state would consider banning contraception. Missouri is planning to bar its citizens from going out of state to get an abortion or is trying to do that. The Senate quite wanly, Senate Democrats quite wanly, on Wednesday tried to pass a bill creating a national right to abortion or or codifying Roe, but couldn't even muster a majority for that. So Emily, I want to start actually with Missouri, which seems like the most alarming. I suspect that the threat that is most likely to be relevant to most Americans when it comes to when it comes to their own personal abortion rights. So Missouri wants to do what to prevent people from going to get an abortion? And is what they're trying to do, is it legal? Because it sounds on its face to me like, wow, they're going to prevent me from going somewhere else to do something. They're going to prevent me from traveling and, and then doing something when I travel. Can they really do that? Right. Good question. Yeah. So Missouri is trying to criminalize going out of state to get an abortion. Um, There are other states that talk about this with regard to minors as opposed to adults. I assumed that the freedom to travel among the states is so bedrock in terms of constitutional law that this legislation would have no chance of being upheld whatsoever. But then I read an analysis by Michael Dorff, who's a law professor who's really smart. And he seemed to think that there were actually arguments on both sides, that it was plausible that a Supreme Court like this one could uphold such a statute, which I really would prefer not to believe is the case. But it's not actually a completely settled question, this question of how much freedom to travel obtains when a state is trying to prevent you from leaving to do something that is illegal in your home state. Um, So, I mean, look, obviously, people don't have to say why they're leaving, right? Like, there's what you could theoretically be prosecuted for, and then there's what will actually happen. Isn't it also a bounty law? Isn't it one of these bounty laws, too? So it's not 
I'm it is, sure. It, is a, it's, yes. it allows citizens of Missouri to then sue you or something. Right. I mean, this is the new enforcement mechanism of choice by right-wing politicians right now. We saw it with SB8, the abortion bill in Texas, um, which the Supreme Court is allowed to stand. We've seen it with the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, this idea that we're going to turn each other in. And, um, you know, that the state is going to turn over its enforcement powers. That itself is so noxious, as we've talked about before, that I keep waiting for the Supreme Court to find a reason to say, no, 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 this is not the way we want to go, America. But they haven't yet. So that remains out there. You're absolutely right. Is this kind of separate legal threat. I also find that it morally abhorrent that this idea that we're going to turn each other in and it's a nation of narcs. On the other hand, I want you, Emily, or you, John, if you want, to disaggregate for me, to explain to me why this is different from being a whistleblower, calling a foul on somebody who is dumping sewage onto into a public stream or doing something else that's illegal, but which which is a different kind of crime. Like, they're both crime. I mean, in this view, abortion would be a crime. And if, in fact, extremely violent crime against a person. And so the idea that people would be reporting it and 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 calling out that crime, how is that different than people reporting and calling out other crimes? Well, so there's a few things going on. I mean, most whistleblower statutes are not like a personal lawsuit where you're going bounty hunting all by yourself, right? That's one. Two, I mean, we do have statutes like the Americans with Disabilities Act in which we, the government has enforcement powers. That's different from SB8 in Texas, where the government has zero enforcement powers. That's why, at least the pretext why the Supreme Court gave for not um, striking down that law. The government has enforcement powers. Private citizens are also being relied on to report infractions. Um, and so you can make money from going around and, like, trying to make sure that, you know, the ramps are of the correct height, et cetera, et cetera, that people can really sit and stand and um, access the way the law requires. There is, however, this notion that we're protecting a larger civil right that involves more than just you. Now, I mean, maybe that distinction falls apart for a lot of people, because if you really think abortion is murder, then you are protecting someone other than just you, or there is this larger good common good. And so I think you're absolutely right that abortion opponents are invoking that notion of a common good and of solidarity among citizens for upholding the law. It's just that it's an incredibly invasive thing to do to somebody else, right? It's like this, I mean, this is the thing about, I mean, there are many things to say, but this sort of basic question about whether access to a legal abortion is a human right and a civil right, or whether it's a wrong, whether those rights should belong to the fetus, and that's who or what deserves protection here. Like, that's the fundamental crux of the dispute. And so all these questions about how these laws are framed in position really come down to that. Another battlefield, Emily, is medical abortion and access to drugs that people get pills that they would get to to induce an abortion fairly early in their pregnancy. And the states that ban abortion will certainly ban those pills. But of course, things get mailed all the time to people. What's going to happen or what's likely to happen around people seeking to get mailed to them in Texas, mailed to them in Mississippi, mailed to them in West Virginia? So this is the thing that I'm watching with probably the most interest. I mean, alongside this question of travel the abortion pills we know from lots of research, some of it during COVID, by the way, are extremely safe and effective. Women can manage them at home. You don't actually need to go see a doctor. Um, doesn't mean you don't need advice, but you can find that advice and counsel on the Internet. Um, if you are trying to get the pills prescribed to you into a state where that is already illegal, there is an organization called Aid Access that's based in Europe that will still send it to, in Texas. That is already illegal or restricted in 19 states. So there are 19 states that have bans on telemedicine for medication abortion that go far above and beyond what the federal FDA requirements are for getting one of those prescriptions. That's another big legal question. Could Congress preempt those state laws? Also, can liberal states decide to provide protections for abortion providers who prescribe across state lines in this manner? So 
Connecticut, my state, actually has done the most in this regard so far. Connecticut passed a bill earlier this month that would provide these legal protections for abortion providers here. I was talking to um, Jillian Gilchrist, who's uh, the state representative who was behind this bill, along with Matt Blumenthal, another state rep. And she said that they they thought about this law in terms of women, patients coming into Connecticut from other states. So the kind of Missouri uh, example from before. But actually, the way it's written, it sounds to me like it would also protect providers prescribing across state lines. Now, that doesn't mean that's like about to happen tomorrow. There are also questions about protecting people's medical licenses, about malpractice insurance. This is all a really big deal. Um, A few weeks ago, I was on the phone with someone who's like an extremely experienced litigator in pro-choice world, and I brought up this idea of states not cooperating. Like Texas wants to say that a doctor in Connecticut committed a felony and asked Connecticut to extradite that doctor. And the lawyer I was talking to was totally dismissive. She was like, that is not a thing. We have not done that since the Fugitive Slave Act. The states cooperate with each other. So it is a big deal. On the other hand, I don't see how we get through the end of row without civil disobedience on some significant scale. Women... Pregnant people can do this on their own by ordering the abortion pills through India and having them come in the mail. And you're right, searching the federal mail is presumably not something that states are going to willy-nilly be able to do. But the idea that there aren't going to be American abortion providers involved, not just after you get the pills, because that you can already find, there are hotlines for that, but also to help you get the pills. The women we are the most concerned about in this new emerging landscape are poor people who have low information. And I think that they're going to need some help. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how all of that develops. I will bet $1,000, $1,000 with anybody that there will be in the next two years some abortion provider who is arrested at Dallas-Fort Worth or arrested driving through uh, Mississippi uh, you know, on their way somewhere else because state uh, law enforcement is like, oh, we're going to get this person who's a Connecticut abortion doctor. Well, abortion but provider. the thing about, yes, although I would say about my legal hypothetical is you would have to not go to Texas, right? Like this is, you only can have protections no, that are reliable uh, if you don't go to the right, state. No, but, but imagine a world, <laughs> imagine a country where huge numbers of people just are unwilling to travel to other states because they feel they're in legal jeopardy traveling and making a connection, a flight connection at the at the airport in Indianapolis. Right. So that is the sort of handmaid's tale future that, you know, could await us. I mean, I'll also say I've been thinking a lot about Ireland. So for many years, Ireland had really, really basically had a ban on abortion. And the way that you got abortion was you either crossed the channel and you went to England, or there was an underground network of um, activists who rebelled and revolted, and they told people how to get the pill, and they helped them. And uh, some of them risked criminal prosecution and actually were prosecuted, and they were sort of loud and proud about it. For really good reason, we have not reached that point in the United States, and I hope we don't. But I think that those things that seemed unthinkable about how we're going to operate are becoming thinkable again. I mean, in the 1960s, we had the Jane Collective in Chicago that women trained themselves to do abortions, and they did them illegally, but they did them as safely as possible because they knew how vital that was. One of the things that about this moment is so many things that, and this has been true of the last four or five years, maybe some people would say longer, so many things that we were able to relatively safely say that's not going to happen. There was like a buffer between the vigilance you needed for diminution of rights or outrageousness kind of at the margin, like how big could that buffer be? But I have a a more immediate question, uh, Emily, which is whether you think that a national abortion ban through the Senate um, is a more kind of easier, clearer target or possibility, because what strikes me is that all the people who've raised money and raised enthusiasm on the abortion issue have to still be out there. So as you mentioned, they'll go, they'll, they'll talk about uh, abortion through the mail, but there are other places where they can seek donations and seek agitation. And one of them would be having the Senate Republicans, if they take over after 2022, get rid of the filibuster and pass a national abortion ban. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that is totally on the table. And you're absolutely right. We have this very energized force in the political right. They waited 50 years for this. They were incredibly dedicated. They got their Supreme Court justices into position. I mean, it's this huge success from the conservative legal movement and, you know, religious and social conservatives more generally. And you can tell from talking to them um, and reading about them and watching them on TV that they are energized. A national abortion ban would politically seem to be a big overreach, right? A majority of Americans want abortion to be legal most or all the time. The idea that we're not going to have abortion anywhere in the country and that, you know, people are going to stand for that, uh, that seems like quite a heavy lift. Um, But as you said, unthinkable things are becoming thinkable. The fact that Mitch McConnell said there might be a national abortion ban, um, or at least played footsie with that idea. So McConnell has said we won't get a w- get rid of the filibuster, but you know, lots of things have been said and then they changed, right? Like precedent matters. Well, well no, maybe it doesn't. So the notion that McConnell's uh, claim that he doesn't want to do away with the filibuster, you know, things change, and um, also McConnell might not be there forever. So. Um, so that's one thing. The the other thing that and and so I guess the fact that McConnell even mentioned it out loud suggests because he is um, such a tactician and and has uh, such a understanding of where his party is that the you could imagine one interpretation being that his view is that suggesting a national abortion ban is a, is an inducement to Republican voters to go vote for Republican candidates because it's a it's a prize they might win. And that that prize, his evaluation, and he's had some success in life, his evaluation is it's more of a spur to Republican voters than it is to Democratic voters. So to follow that out, the argument would be, yes, Democratic voters don't want Roe overturned, but the but once you go, go past that, the feelings about abortion are complex, and that in a campaign context, that complexity creates a situation in which basically an insufficient number of people, an insufficient number of new people are energized to go vote for Democrats. They kind of see it as a big mess, and they just don't um, engage. What's this seems to me to be a central test of Democrats because this isn't just about a key issue Democrats have been in favor of, which is abortion rights. It is an argument about uh, you could argue if you were a Democrat, you would say this is a, of a piece. This is of a piece with people riding at the at the Capitol and using power, the raw exercise of power, to get what they want. That this is of a piece with uh, Donald Trump and the way he ran his presidency. That what's happening here is um, is that power is being used to deny women uh, this choice. And whatever your views may be on abortion, that this attaches to a larger assault. Um, and that this assault is not just um, some conspiracy theory. That this is a long-planned operation that has happened in multiple different places. If you were a Democrat, that seems to me that is the argument you make, and that that energizes voters on a broader platform than simply the question of abortion, that this this is becomes a part of a of a larger story you could tell if you were Republicans, which also would include denying Garland's uh, nomination. You know, it's weird. Like, I, I feel like this is an incredible political victory that was earned through political strategy now not all of it was it was pretty ruthless political strategy it was ruthless not to have a hearing on garland but it was this is not like rioting at the capitol this is this is just a long game of 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 incredible precision and brilliance that masterminded by abortion anti-abortion activists and and uh by people like mitch mcconnell i think that's a i think that's a a keen uh distinction that you're drawing um what I would, I, and I, and I'm speaking in voice here, so it's a little tricky. But I think what the argument would be is that it, whether it's in the political realm or the riots of the six, which were outside of the political realm, when the Republican project uh, runs up against an obstacle, whether it's the norm of advising consent that calls for an actual hearing, or whether it's the norm of accepting um, election results they will go plus one. They will do what is necessary to do to retain their power position. And that we've seen multiple instances of that, maybe not all of the same amplitude, but when they come up upon a barrier, they will go plus one. And that 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 has been seen in enough different spaces that you've got to assume that this is basically the way they operate. And that if you care about anything, the normal barriers that are going to protect the thing you care about 
there will always be an effort of plus one to uh, go after that thing you care about. And so you should be energized and vote people into office. I'm not suggesting people do anything outside of the normal, but I'm just saying if you were trying to construct a motivational argument for a Democratic Party that is in the doldrums, that doesn't rely singularly on abortion, that there is a larger narrative that it seems to me that some clever Democrat could probably put together that is not histrionic, that's not conspiratorial, that has specific things that can be pointed to if there were a Democratic Party that were, uh, you know, energized by a leader who could make and, and repeat this case. I just wanted to note two things that I thought were strategically smart on the side of abortion opponents. One was that I noticed abortion opponent leaders saying we would support a national six-week ban or a 15-week ban, like not having a fight about a purity test, just saying like both of those sound good to us. That seemed like smart discipline. And the other thing I just want to say is like we are talking about forced pregnancy for tens of thousands of women. Like, that's what is at stake here. I think sometimes we just sort of forget what it actually means. And I have been reading about the early abortion rights cases that were pre-Roe in, um, they begin in New York in 1970. And it was a different tactic, legally speaking, from Roe. The lawyers who brought them um, amassed hundreds of plaintiffs. They wanted judges who were almost all men at the time to hear stories. And I was reading back and some of the testimony and, you know, people were standing on blindfolded on corners and being driven all over the place and going to dirty offices and risking their health. And someone went to the gynecologist in Poughkeepsie, you know, weeks later because she was still bleeding. And the person said they were going to call the police on her and send her to jail. And women were being forced to have babies and giving them up for adoption and feeling just overwhelmed by guilt and trauma about that. That's the world of illegal abortion. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. And you get so much else with your membership. You get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get member-exclusive episodes from shows like Slow Burn and Amicus and unlimited reading on the Slate site, too, of course. And our Slate Plus segment this week what are the ludicrous things that we do now that would have horrified our 25-year-old selves? So we will talk about things, the ways in which the ways in which you come to embarrass yourself. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Former President Trump has been endorsing candidates in races across the country in the midterm races. He's endorsed dozens, maybe nearly 100 at this point, usually incumbents. Uh, he's particularly keen on endorsing candidates who are running against people who voted to certify the 2020 election or who voted for the infrastructure bill. And until this week, he had gone 55 for 55. 55 candidates endorsed, 55 had won their primaries. He had his 
latest test this week in Nebraska and West Virginia. How did he do, John? Well, he went in the big races. He went one for one, basically. Uh, Alex Mooney won in the West Virginia two Republican primary. That was the that was the Trump candidate. Very important and interesting race there, which we can talk about more. But um, David McKinney was the one who voted for the infrastructure bill, and that's really important because this isn't just. Trump versus and MAGA versus the GOP establishment. This is whether the notion of voting for anything on a bipartisan basis, um, it it runs you out of the party. And that's not just been tested in this West Virginia too. But also you'll remember that Marjorie Taylor Greene said any Republican that voted for uh, the infrastructure bill should be run out of the party. And while she is, um, you know, at the furthest extreme and shouldn't be taken seriously for the majority of the things that she says, she has an oversized influence on the party because of her ability to both raise money and activate the base. So at issue here is the is the the notion of of any kind of bipartisan deal making in Nebraska. Trump didn't win his candidate didn't win Charles uh, Herbster. Um, He lost in the gubernatorial race. One interesting thing about that race, and I don't know the extent to which this mattered, but 8,000 Democrats switched their uh, party registration in the last two months to to Republican. So that's switching from Democrat to Republican, allowing them to vote in the GOP primary. So... um, That'll be uh, that'll be interesting. I mean, the guy who won in Nebraska won with 33 percent of the vote. So it wasn't determinative. But I wonder if it played any role. Yeah, it was really interesting. Charles Herbster is a just an appalling person who was who was running in that Nebraska primary and was had Trump's endorsement. And he seemed to have Trump's endorsement because he is like Trump. But he was accused credibly, very credibly accused by women, Republican women, including a Republican woman state legislator, of having been groped by him. And eight of them. Eight of them, yeah. And so it's, it, it is amazing that even, even with that level of accusation from people within the party, within the Republican establishment, that he should, could still get very close to, to winning the nomination is pretty shocking. One of the things that I noticed, John, with Herbster losing to Jim Pillen, who's the the person who will be the Republican nominee and will certainly be the governor probably in Nebraska, barring some crazy turn of events, there doesn't seem to be a tenable non-Trump position to hold. So it's not that Pillen, who won, is some kind of moderate Republican who is who's an anti-Trump figure. He's an extremely conservative, and he pushed himself into much more Trumpy-like positions in order to ensure that he won that race. Uh, it's not that, so it's not that Trump is necessarily winning everything. It's just that there's not any other house that people can live in within the Republican Party right now. Well, there is a house they can live in. It's just small and nobody comes to visit. I mean, um, you know, it's not the winning. It's not the winning. uh, It's not the winning candidacy. Uh, uh, And so that's the bill, the real problem. And also, I mean, so, for example, Matt Dolan, who ran in the Republican primary in Ohio, um, tried to occupy that space. And there was some discussion that um, there was, you know, that he was on the rise in the end um, and, and because of his you know, anti-Trump position, um, and because all the other candidates were seeking to to kiss the ring, and that you know it didn't happen. Um, but one of the things that is interesting, and to the extent that we read these races for any kind of sense of where the Republican Party is and how much Trump matters and so forth, you have all these interesting overlays. So obviously, West Virginia is a deep, deep, deep red state. Right. So you would expect Trump, if he's going to have power, to have it in a state like West Virginia. On the other hand, David McKinney, who um, voted for the infrastructure bill um, and voted, importantly, for the January 6th commission, this is a fight between two Republicans, uh, two incumbent Republicans. The redrawn redrawn district the two were running in included more of McKinney's old district than Mooney's. So you would assume you would think that that would favor McKinney. So you have to kind of like pull apart all these contributing factors to decide to figure out whether and how much Donald Trump has a lot of power. We'll see in Pennsylvania, for example, he's uh, endorsed Mehmet Oz for the Republican senatorial seat there. Um, uh, That may not work. He endorsed J.D. Vance for the Ohio seat, um, a redder state, and that did work. So um, you have to figure out sort of how MAGA the person is and then how MAGA the state is to determine if we can draw any conclusions about Trump's, you know, power as an endorser. 
Is that the larger reason we should care about this? I mean, if you're someone like me who has trouble keeping the names and particulars of these state-by-state primaries straight, like, what is the broader Why tapestry? Why should we care? Yes. Yeah. Care, we should care for a couple of reasons. One, to the extent that Trump himself controls the party, potentially in swing state districts or swingy areas, could help Democrats by keeping Trump on the ballot. Um, again, these would be in districts and states where it's very, very close, where the energizing benefit from Trump is outweighed by how much of an anathema he is to uh, independents and how much he might fire up Democrats. So in that sense, he plays a role not just in the Republican Party and calling its tune, but also in the Democratic Party. It matters a great deal because if you get Trump's support, it means you have done one singular thing, and that is you've denied the results of the presidential election. And that matters not just in Congress, of course, um, because if they take over Congress, then that you know filters its way through. But it also uh, matters in terms of all of these Secretary of State races. 27 states will choose a Secretary of State in the fall. 17 of those states have at least one Republican candidate who denies that the 2020 election uh, was won by President Biden. As you know better than anyone, Emily, the power um, of those Secretaries of State will really matter in 2024. Um, so it and and the and the Trump endorsement factor has to do with, A, has he put the finger on the candidate? That matters a little bit. But it also matters whether the candidate is just a self-actualizing Trump person. Um, So, you know, so do they believe all the things Trump does, even though they don't get his his nomination? And that's the market that I've been talking about for months. he's, He's created a market in the party where somebody like Kathy Barnett, who is the Republican who is rising in the Republican primary in Pennsylvania, which will take place next week, is kind of a MAGA candidate, even though Trump has endorsed uh, Dr. Oz. So so is there a market in the party that encourages all these people to run and they win by competing in that market? And then it just further entrenches the um, illiberal tendencies of Donald Trump in the party without Donald Trump having to even be involved. Yeah, I mean, I've been wondering about that question, which is when Trump dies, which surely he must someday, someday, which of these forces that are currently tied to him uh, persist? I mean, how many of them are independent? How much is the dynamic whereby being being a crazy conspiracist, you know, uncompromising anti-partisanship and any anti-bipartisanship in any form, how much of that is now baked into the Republican Party and how much of it withers when he dies? It's a great question. And that's to Emily's question of, of why this matters. It matters because you we're seeing how much of this is, is connected to him. By the way, we should we should perhaps have a wry smile at the fact that in West Virginia, once a state known for its uh, addiction to infrastructure projects, that voting for an infrastructure project gets you uh, bounced from your seat. Yeah. I mean, I, I also find that the something really sad about Nebraska, which is Nebraska has is a history of a it's a, if you think about a state, which is it's a historically fairly Republican state, but it's Republican in a very moderate way. Gent, it's a gentle Republicans and rather extremely conservative Democrats and and rather conservative, but, but quite courtly Republicans. And to see that gentle and reasonable place become as poisonous as everywhere else just is depressing. It's just very depressing to me to see. And I know when you talk about civility, everyone gets so angry, but to see the country become so uncivil and angry and irate and furious and in collar and filled with cortisol is, is depressing. Couldn't agree more. Well, but one one glimmer of hope of, uh, to counter that point of view is in the Secretary of State race in in uh, Nebraska, the Republican Secretary of State who pushed back against the lies of uh, President Trump and his followers um, beat two far right uh, challengers. So at least in that case, and in an important um, in an important office, uh, the trend you described did not prevail. Did you? Not say at the opening of the segment, John, that Marjorie Taylor Greene was a big fundraiser for Republicans and like a force in the party. I just want to go back to that because I realize I have been imagining her as a kind of fringe figure. And actually, that seems totally wrong. There are no fringe figures anymore, Emily. The fringe is the the energy. 
Well, can we just unpack that a little bit more? Because I have been thinking like, oh, all this attention she gets, that's just like bright, shiny object. But no. Well, bright, shiny object raises bright, shiny money, gets people to bright, shiny show up at, at the voting booth. And as David said, there is no fringe anymore to, to bring out Andy Card, uh, a Republican of a, of, of a former Republican Party. You know, the fringe has become the rug. This happens in both parties. It's asymmetrical in the Republican Party, but it's true in both parties that people who are charismatic um, and young or new, are no they no longer have to go through the apprenticeship process. They can get on TV and raise money on their own, and that gives them swack in, the, in their party. In the Democratic Party, the leadership of the Democratic Party has made a concerted effort to keep that group um, in its lane. They have more power than the Republican Party because that group is far larger and the voters groove to it much more across the party. There's a greater share of the Republican Party that loves what Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson are offering than there is an equivalent share by yeah. a pretty big but, amount. But the, in the, the Democrats end, end with this geriatric class, though. Then you end with... Well, that's a separate... That's you, a distinct problem. Nancy I mean, Pelosi and Jim Clyburn and... and, and uh, Steny Hoyer, the gerontocrats. John, can you preview the primaries next week for us? Yes. I mean, the, keep your eye on North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Republican. It's hard to keep my eyes on both of them at once. They're in <laughs> That's country. true. It can hurt your eyes. I mean, just for some of the shiny objects, Madison Cawthorn, the embattled Republican uh, congressman, is uh, may or may not make it through his primary in North Carolina. Um, you also have an open Senate seat in North Carolina. You also have um, a guy named Bo Hines, which uh, Blake Hounshell wrote a, a did a good write-up in the Times about who is, um, I think, 29, maybe, running for in the Republican primary in Raleigh. He's a Trump-endorsed candidate, multi-candidate field in the Republican primary. He may rise up uh, out of that, which just sort of attach that to our previous conversation. And then in Pennsylvania, it's this Kathy Barnett, who is not a candidate that Mitch McConnell would like, not the candidate that that um, that Donald Trump would like, but may very well, she has a kind of, uh, she has a, uh, a, a modeled background, which um, might make her a less good general election candidate. But she ran a very compelling ad, an anti-abortion rights ad that caused her to rise some, and so she's a really fascinating candidate to watch. And then, of course, Pennsylvania, a crucial state because of the governor's race. Governors in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, all will matter with respect to, A, abortion uh, and abortion rights as the goes back to the states, but also B, the question of election certification in 2024 in those key battleground states where the governor's races are up for grabs. We're joined by Ruth Graham, national correspondent at The New York Times, who covers faith religion and values. And she's here to talk to us about the astonishing, and to me, rather terrifying politicization of white evangelicals in, in extraordinary numbers and very rapidly. Places that had been mildly political, people in churches that had been mildly political have become radically political and way to the right. This is something that began before Trump was president, but the age of Trump clearly threw napalm and kerosene and gasoline and rubbing alcohol all on this fire. So, Ruth, let's start with the story you wrote this month about Kevin Thompson, who's an Arkansas pastor. Who is he? What happened to him? And how does it parallel what's been happening at evangelical churches around the country? Yeah, Kevin Thompson is a pastor in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is the second or third biggest city in Arkansas. So not a not a small town guy. I talked with him for the first time last summer, actually looking into a story about evangelicals in QAnon. He told me this story that I could not forget about mentioning Tom Hanks offhand in a sermon and having multiple members of his congregation kind of follow up with him afterwards, really concerned that he somehow didn't care about sex trafficking because they were connecting it with, uh, you know, there's a piece of the QAnon conspiracy that says that Tom Hanks is the like head of a group of Hollywood pedophiles. So this is a church. I mean, it's called Community Bible Church, founded in the 90s, early 2000s. And just a couple of years ago, I would have described it as like a completely 
bog standard mainstream white evangelical church. This church is made up of political conservatives, but that was not the animating premise of the church. Um, you wouldn't hear that if you went there on Sunday mornings. It's not what people would tell you they were there to hear. Um, you know, you're hearing kind of popular style modern music. There's multimedia stuff going on. It's an attractive, you know, fun place to spend your Sunday morning for, for you know, a lot of people. Um, it's a kind of church, I guess you could think of it as like you're getting a TED talk about the Bible and then you're getting kind of a version of a Coldplay concert and you have your community there and you go home. And um, and again, if you show up there from, from the outside, it's approachable. Hopefully it's fun. It's appealing. It's not confusing. And it's, it really is not political. It's meant to be um, like just very open to a lot of people. Although again, you know, it, they usually are conservative spaces, but that's not the, the primary draw. So over the last five, six years, um, Kevin, the pastor who I was focused on in this story, um, he, he blogged against Trump in, in pretty, you know, relatively mild evangelical language, but he was in Arkansas and remembered how his church and how he had been taught about Bill Clinton in the 90s. And he saw some inconsistencies there. So he spoke against Trump. Summer of 2020, he's starting conversations about racial justice that the people in his church are not comfortable with. And it's just this kind of, you know, bit by bit over the last few years, there are these division points um, and by last fall, he ends up leaving the church. And it's it's not super acrimonious. One of the reasons I was interested in this story is I think it's much, much more typical than some of the big explosive divisions that, that kind of make headlines. Um, but this kind of thing is happening all over where there's just this divide between pulpit and pew and pastors who are a lot of times a little bit more educated than people in the pews. They have a different perspective on Trump, um, they just, it turns out, view the world right now in just a little bit of a different way. And, I, you know, it parallels, you can see kind of similar things happening in the Republican Party and lots of other institutions. But I thought it was a really telling little microcosm of what's going on with evangelicals. So when you think about this writ large for the evangelical church, do you imagine a future in which churches become more entrenched in a kind of Trump version of the world because the Kevin Thompsons are going to move away? Like, how does this affect the future of the church? Because it seems like the energy of religious institutions often comes from the people who feel the most righteous about about their worship and their devotion. And so it just made me wonder if you were going to see a kind of um, move in that direction as other people become disaffected. I think that's exactly what's happening, and I don't claim to know exactly how this all ends up, but I think that's the kind of separation that you're seeing now. There's a lot of evangelicals in the pews at churches like Community Bible who are not satisfied with that kind of quasi-apolitical, um, you know, approach to church, um, or they're really attuned in a new way to what they're hearing from their pastors. And if their pastors are a touch more moderate than they are, you know, less conservative, that might have been okay five, 10 years ago, and now is not because they're hearing from people like Charlie Kirk and, you know, these other voices online. Like, if your pastor is not saying X, Y, Z, find a new church. I mean, they are hearing that in venues outside the church and hearing that online. So, yeah, I think there's this big division that is starting, but but really, I don't think we've seen the end of it at all between overtly political right-wing churches where people are hearing on Sunday mornings about vaccines and election conspiracies um, and then the churches that are kind of more missions oriented, conversion oriented, they would they would describe it as being more gospel oriented, which at this point is really kind of the I would describe it as the older model at this point. And and these other kind of places are really, really booming. Ruth, help me think through the membership question here for evangelicals, because um like, I think it was 10 years ago, another John Dickerson, uh, who happens to be an evangelical pastor, a friend of mine, wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. And basically, he uh, said, the reason the evangelical church is losing younger members is it's gotten all, it's gotten off base. It misses the central mission, which is to help people in their path toward Christ. And we got to get back to that and stop fussing with all this other stuff. 
Wait, was all this other stuff politics, John? Yeah, politi- oh, politics okay. and just off the central question of, of you know, the, the central question, which is in that book that sits at the front of the room. But it seems to me there is also potentially a growth opportunity for some churches, which is to, no, not get rid of that stuff, but go ankle neck deep. And for two, two things suggest that to me. One is that, that you have these people who are now self-identifying as evangelicals, though they don't go to church, that they are Trump supporter, MAGA supporters first, and that this is a part of the identity, so they wear that hat, even though they're not evangelicals and don't really care that much about religion, frankly. Um, and, and, uh, uh, so, and then the second thing is that then that leads to the sense that basically some of these churches become political clubs and it's actually a lot more fun to come and talk about how you hate the libs than to talk about why you have to love the stranger and why you have to, you know, sublimate your pride and why humility is important and hell tithing. Um, so can you help me understand those two things and how is the evangelical church doing in terms of larger number membership? Yeah, I think that that's a really important question. And I heard a lot of warning from, you know, warnings from the kind of older model pastors, the Kevin Thompson types, the Russell Moore types who are, who are warning, like, listen, we're going to lose people. This is, this is alienating. It's not, we're not getting across our core message. Um, but you know, when you, when you do look at the numbers over the course of the Trump presidency, more white people started identifying as evangelicals than left. You know, there were all these warnings about people leaving, but actually Trump grew the number of self-identified white evangelicals in the country. Now, what does that have to do with church attendance and the, the Bebbington quadrilateral and all these different measurements of what it actually means to, you know, be a Bible believing evangelical Christian is that's a different thing. And that's something that, you know, it will, people are still wrestling with for sure. Um, but I think it's clear that there is a lot of short term gain in going political on the right. <laughs> um, you know, you can see Kevin, you know, people like Kevin Thompson trying to gradually have little conversations about things like Black Lives Matter. And that is, that's not a winner. Um, but, but yeah, going right at least. There are people like Greg Locke, you know, these big kind of celebrity pastors who actually draw a ton of people in person and then hundreds of thousands more online. And there there are clearly short-term gains there. I think the critics would still say, well, let's look at 50 years. Let's look at 100 years. Let's look, look at souls. You know, what is this actually doing to like the soul of America? And that's, you know, a harder thing to measure and a harder thing to know. But short term, um, yeah, it's clear that there are, are gains to be made and in, in going right and preaching about vaccines and all this stuff. There is this aphorism that politics is downstream from culture. And I sort of think that that is no longer true. I think everything is now downstream from politics. It's things start at politics and religion is at least evangelical, white evangelical religion is a, is a, is manifesting that right now. One of the things you talked about at the beginning, Ruth, was, was describing community Bible and the the sense of what it was like to go there. And in my experience, you can only maintain a sense of anger and being angry and scared and furious for a certain amount of time. It's like more fun not to be that way. It's nicer to be relaxed and joyful and, and calm, but, but maybe, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe <laughs> I don't I'm wrong. know. Yeah. Honestly, I, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I just, I, my question is like, how long can this be maintained? This, this, this being at 11, Right. Well, I mean, it's you have to keep finding things to be angry about, right? But in those spaces, you it feels like you're really part of an urgent project, right? And so you're on this political mission that is also a spiritual mission, and whichever comes first, they're infused into each other, and it's very exciting. It feels like you're you're in this project and in this community with incredibly high stakes. I mean, I I've done other reporting on the way that Christian worship and worship music and sort of prayer rituals and all that is getting infused into Trump rallies, lower level kind of political candidate rallies. And so whichever comes first, the politics or the religious culture, it, you know, they amp each other up and they just raise the stakes of both. The politics give it, gives it this immediacy and this urgency. And then the religion gives it this incredibly high stakes. And um, so they, they feed on each other. I mean, self-righteousness is one of the things that that book at the front of the room is is 
warning against because it's so incredibly attractive and particularly in the in the religious realm. So it seems totally possible that if you build it the right way, you can create an uh, an orgy of self-righteousness um, that's totally antithetical to the text and the teachings of the person who's supposed to be at the center of the faith, but it's not an, it's a known issue. It's a known bug in the system. Ruth, one last thing before we let you go. So in my experience as a, as a Jew, as a Jewish journalist who occasionally spent a bunch of time with white evangelicals, extraordinary amounts of courtesy, always so welcoming and just had a really great time. Like never felt unwelcome, always felt, always felt, uh, you know, joy and the presence and, and hospitality. You're a New York Times reporter uh, who is going into in, to these now politicized spaces. Is it, has, the, has the temperature changed? Yes and no. So there is certainly, you know, I hear a lot of opinions about the New York Times and it's very clear to me that there's a lot of resistance and hesitance there um, and outright you know, aggression, not necessarily, not usually in the kind of Sunday morning church spaces, but I've certainly experienced that. Um, but I also, you know, when you talk to people and you talk to them as an individual, I, what I get a lot is like, well, I trust you, but your editors will, you know, never let you get away with, you know, saying what's really happening here, saying what the truth is. And so, yeah, I mean, the temperature has changed a lot in the last even five years of being a religion journalist. Um, but, also, I don't know. People still, people are still nice and, and want to talk, and I can still get them talking. Ruth Graham is a reporter with the New York Times who covers religion, faith, and values. Thanks for coming yeah, together. Thank you. Let's go to cocktail chatter. I'm not sure what you're having. I just had a lot of Sicilian white wine. So maybe when you're having a Sicilian white wine, a delicious Sicilian white wine, what are you going to be chattering about, Emily? Don't say your dog. I promise I wasn't going to say my dog. I want to talk about two books. The first is called Forbidden City. It's by Vanessa Hua. It's, I think, an imagined rendition of a young girl who ends up um, in a relationship with Chairman Mao and everything that unfolds from that. I started it. Um, I'm a big Vanessa Hua fan. Um, she wrote a book called A River of Stars, which I bet I talked about on the Gabfest because I loved it. And I'm going to um, talk to Vanessa about this book for our Gabfest read segment in some coming months. So readers, if you want to read along first, I don't think it's out quite yet, but it will be out soon. Forbidden City, Vanessa Hua. Seems great so far. Also true of a book called Nasty, Brutish, and Short by Scott Hershevitz. Um, it's a funny book about big philosophical questions, but all from the point of view of your kid. Um, and I picked it up feeling a little skeptical that I really wanted to read this book, but actually, like, it's very winning. Um, and I think parents in particular or grandparents might really like it. So Nasty, Brutish, and Short by Scott Hershevitz. Uh, that is one of my favorite phrases from philosophy. The life of man, the state of nature is solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. John, what is your chatter? Okay, so my chatter is a shout out to Andrea Elliott, who we had on the Gabfest when her book Invisible Child came out, um, because she won the Pulitzer Prize, um, which is an amazing uh, and and well deserved, much deserved reward for the incredible work she did uh, on Invisible Child. Um, I have two other things to suggest. One is a piece by John Ward in Christianity Today about how uh, becoming a reporter actually strengthened his faith. It's a great piece about faith and about what it means to be a journalist and uh, the process of discernment. And so whether you happen to be a person of faith or not, it's worth reading. The final point is the Bob Dylan Center opened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I did a piece on Sunday morning about last week, um, which includes, for those of you who haven't watched it, um, a little personal flashback that might be amusing to uh, GabFest listeners. But one thing that struck me about the visit, and I don't, I, I seek comment from uh, you, Emily and David, which is that I couldn't think of another place you could go because I've listened to Bob Dylan and carried him around in my car and my head and for 35 years another location you could go to that would conjure so many different memories of, of your life. Because music kind of causes time travel. You remember where you were when you heard a song or whatever. And it was a, it, 
in addition to what it says about the artist and creativity and all those things that are in the Sunday morning piece, I was I was wrestling with the idea of where else in life you can visit and go that is such a prompt for so many different parts of your life. You can go to your house you grew up in, and that reminds you of when you lived there or your elementary school, and that reminds you of a specific period. But this had a much longer timeline of um, of these kind of tri- little bits of time travel back to different periods of my life. Um, anyway, it was a it's a it's well worth going to if you're um, in Oklahoma, Tulsa, and Oklahoma City have um, have have charms um, that are worth discovering, uh, including some of the best ramen I've ever had in Oklahoma City. All right, uh, my chat are just two quickies. One. Mother Jones Magazine, always excellent. Mother Jones Magazine has a long and uh, involved and rich package about private equity and how private equity has swallowed America. And I've just started it, so I, I haven't read all 14 articles yet. But it's it seems great and fascinating and has some incredible numbers that private equity employs. One in 14 Americans works for a company that's owned by a private equity company. It is something like 7% of the American economy is now private equity. And there are reasons to be really concerned about that. The other thing I want to chatter about is something that I saw on my flight uh, back from Germany this week on a Lufthansa plane. I don't know whether this is something only Lufthansa does or, or this is now widespread in airlines, but I strongly urge you to seek it out if, if it's on your plane, which is they have cameras in the belly of the plane and in the nose of the plane and then on the tail of the plane. And you can watch the flight from these cameras. So you can see the pilot's eye view. You can see a view from the top of the tail, which allows you to see the whole plane. And you can see a view that goes, looks directly down. And if you're like me, somebody who is absolutely fascinated by, by being above things and the view from above, it is it was heaven. Unfortunately, my flight was like in cloud the whole time, so there was not that much to see. <laughs> but you but, still watched. But the I whole still time. watched it. I watched it every second. There wasn't cloud. I was watching uh, and watching the approach, and you can you watching us just taxiing along the runway, just seeing how exactly our pilot is sticking to that yellow line in the middle of the runway. Uh, it was amazing. It was. I loved it. Listeners, you sent us. Excellent chatters. You send them to us at gabfestaslate.com and you tweet them to us at, at slategabfest. And this week, you collectively returned to a chatter that you gave us a few weeks ago with a follow up, and it's fascinating. It comes from Nick Gaffney. Hello, Political Gabfest. Once again, it's Nick Gaffney from Lebanon, New Hampshire. I wanted to give you an update on my recent cocktail chatter about the slash school budget in Croydon, New Hampshire. In my previous chatter, I mentioned that only 34 residents were at the original meeting where the town school budget was cut in half by a motion from a group of libertarian free staters. There was a chance that the town could roll back the cuts, but only if at least half the town's registered voters were present at a new town meeting. I'm happy to report that on Saturday, May 7th, more than half of the town's 565 registered voters showed up and at a vote of 377 to 2, reinstated the town's original school budget. It appears to be a happy ending for most of the Croydon residents, but also a reminder to not take things for granted when it comes to local civic engagement. I'm so glad Nick followed up on that because he gave us the original chatter and it was, I remember gasping with surprise and indignation at what had happened and, and how far fetched it seemed that they were actually going to be able to overturn it. But it seems like the, the people of Croydon came together to restore the budget that they wanted to have. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations at Slate. And Alicia Montgomery is the Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at Slate GapFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And look, there is Emily's puppy. There's Emily's puppy not being seen by GAFS listeners. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.